So we are still in the Psalms. We are in Psalm 51 today, which is a Psalm that is, is really dear to my heart. Uh, if, if you listen to the podcast and they, uh, when we started this series off, they had asked me what were my um, two favorite Psalms. And I went very cliche, but I love it. Psalm 23, uh, the Lord is my shepherd is a great, great Psalm. Uh, but the other one I picked was Psalm 51. And so when Bill needed a week covered and I was trying to think which Psalm I should do, 51 seemed like it would be uh, the perfect choice. And so Psalm 51 is what's called a penitential psalm. So it's, it's really just uh, a psalm of repentance. And so um, from, from my experience, and, and maybe this doesn't relate to you, but perhaps in some form uh, you can connect to it. I, I grew up in the church, and so I grew up uh, especially through the 90s, kind of contemporary Christian scene. Um, and, and I'm no church historian. I'm no sociologist, so you know, take this with a grain of salt. But I feel like growing up in the 90s, if, if any of you can relate in terms of the Christian culture at that time, is we were like, re- we were really a weird bunch. Um, we kind of like would, would take what the culture was doing, what the culture was, was uh, popular at the time, and then we kind of brought it in. We would baptize it, of course, and, and then just kind of do our own weird sub-Christian version of it. So, um, you know, that, out of that came things like you would see like someone wearing a Mountain Dew shirt with the logo, and then upon closer evaluation, you would realize that it wasn't saying Mountain Dew, it was saying some weird Christian cliche phrase or some Bible verse, and you do that with Superman and Pepsi, you know, things, and so that was our, that was what we did. We thought it was cool, and we were just weird Christian 90s kids, um, but part of that, um, you know, that, that bringing in of the culture is kind of like what Bill pushes against when he uses the word churchianity, and by that he means a few things, but one of the things is that the culture in, in some way, shape, or form is maybe having a little bit too much of an impact, too much of an influence on how we do things as the church. And so very popular in, in that time, and I'm sure this, this predates my youth group days, uh, is we had things that became like the sinner's prayer or accepting Jesus as your personal savior. Now, these things aren't wrong in and of themselves, but they got to a point where we were kind of just going through the motions, that we would have, you know, a very moving worship service, the kick drum and the bass would really get down to the deep of somebody's core, and then we would all bow our heads and close our eyes, and the pastor would have everyone raise their hand and would say, just say this prayer. And then maybe, you know, there are churches that did it a lot better, but then sometimes you would just leave it at that. And so this, this person said this prayer, but we don't know if there was any real faith actualizing it, if there was no faith connected to it, because it's faith that is what unites us to Christ, not just the doing of any particular action. And accepting Jesus as our personal Savior, it'd be kind of, you know, it was our get-out-of-jail-free card. Lord, I accept you. And, you know, that's based off of Paul in Romans chapter 10. He says, if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so accepting Jesus as our personal Savior really is the second half of that verse, that we're believing that God raised him from the dead, he is vindicated in what he did, that he accomplishes salvation for his people, but then where is the first half of that verse? The idea that Jesus is Lord and has full authority over your life, what you do, what you say, how you act, how you think, what doctrines you believe, how the people of God are to worship him, and how much culture should impact and affect the things we do as a church. And so this is kind of my background, and, and I can say that the teaching I kind of got in Sunday school, I knew the Bible stories, and I knew the moral lessons that I was supposed to pull from these stories, but I didn't necessarily understand the doctrine of repentance, which is what we're looking at today in Psalm 51. Now, of course, that may not be any fault of the churches that I was raised in. I just could have been an idiot 
teenager and adolescent. I'm sure none of us know any of those. But it wasn't embedded in us that repentance was of extreme importance for our Christian life. And we know that because we see Jesus in the Gospels. He begins his entire ministry with what? The words repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Martin Luther reflecting in the 1500s on this idea of Jesus saying repent before all he had access to was the Latin Bible, the Vulgate, which would translate Jesus' words repent as do penance. When he was able to get his hands on the original manuscripts in Greek of the New Testament and began studying what Jesus was saying, he understood that Jesus wasn't saying do penance. He understood that what Jesus was saying and willing is that the whole of the Christian's life a believer's life should be one of repentance. And this was the first of his uh, famous 95 theses that he would nail to a church door, which essentially would launch uh, what we know as the Protestant Reformation. And so repentance is what we're looking at today. We'll be in Psalm 51. And so in Psalm 51, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to that. Uh, we see uh, a superscription. Now, a lot of times we just kind of blow past these. It's, you know, sometimes it'll just say a masculine of David or, or maybe won't even have a superscription at all. But this particular psalm is very critical to read that superscription that is in the original text. And we read, so David is penning the psalm. He says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. So David has written this. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so the historical context for this psalm, if you're unfamiliar, is when David, he sends his army out to war, and so then there's an initial kind of warning by the narrator when he's, he's emphasizing this, that David has sent his army to war, he normally would go with them to war, but instead he chooses to hang back and let them go fight his battles. And so while he's home and the, the soldiers are away, David is up on his roof and he sees a young lady, he thinks, it's pretty good. Uh, he knows it's Bathsheba. He brings her over. He lays with her, and then she is pregnant with his child, and so he panics. He's now committed adultery. This child will be very much evidence that something has been up because uh, her husband Uriah is at war. He is away, and so he brings Uriah back from the front. He tries to get Uriah drunk, so he'll go home, lay with his wife, and then that way he can cover up the pregnancy, and everything will smooth over. But instead, Uriah in the story is a more noble character, is more righteous than David at this time. And so Uriah sleeps at the gates of the castle because he knows his brothers in arms are on the front. He knows his brothers in arms are sleeping and fighting and are cold and tired and worn out. Why would he then go home to the comfort of his own bed to lay with his wife? And so David then has to send a message with Uriah, a sealed message in his hand, trusting Uriah's righteousness that he's not going to peek at this message that he then gives to the commander, and the commander puts Uriah in the, the harshest part of the fighting, and then they have everyone pull back from him. So that way Uriah is sure to be killed and is killed on the front line. And so David thinks he's gotten away with it, but God sends Nathan to then confront him on his sin. Nathan does, and David then feels the full weight of his sins and knows his sin will found him out and has found him out. And so he pens the psalm. And so we're going to read Psalm 51, and then we'll just go back and have a few uh, comments on the passages, and then hopefully uh, hear what the Lord is teaching us today in terms of repentance. So verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar." And so we see at the beginning of this psalm that David says, Have mercy or be gracious to me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. And so mercy is, is easily defined as undeserved favor. And so we see that David understands he has sinned, but he doesn't then ground his petition for God's forgiveness in any of his past works. And David has done some pretty good past works. He saved Israel multiple times. Many times he defeated Goliath, he defeated the enemies of Israel, he has brought salvation to his people in terms of freeing them from oppressors. But David in no way, shape, or form thinks that these things can save him or earn his forgiveness from God. He realizes that he has to begin with a petition to God's mercy, God's undeserved favor in this time. That without the mercy of God, we're essentially in Adam and all doomed. As I was studying for this, the commentator that I was reading, reflecting on that fact of a part of us in Adam, apart from the mercy of God, we would have his power would destroy us. His wisdom would confound us. His justice condemn us. His majesty affright us. But by his mercy, because of his mercy, all these things, his power, his wisdom, his justice, his majesty become for our good or a turn to our good. And so how did David know that he needed to begin this petition, uh, seeking God's mercy? Well, David, as the king of Israel, would have loved God's law. That in Deuteronomy 17, we know that the king was meant to write down uh, under the priest's supervision a copy of the law of God, and that he was to read from it each day and to meditate upon it. So David would have known of Exodus 34, when the Lord is passing before Moses, when Moses asked God, show me your glory, and the Lord uh, does so and passes before him and proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, everything David knows he needs in this moment, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so David knows that God does not clear the guilty. And so his only course of action is to repent of his sins and to petition the mercy of God. And so the first thing we see is that true repentance must begin as an appeal to God for his mercy because we know our sin places him under his just condemnation. Uh, A famous English Puritan, Thomas Watson, who wrote a uh, book called The Doctrine of Repentance, puts it very bluntly this way. He says, either sin must drown in the tears of repentance or the soul must burn in hell. Super heavy, but those are essentially the two ways as we saw in Psalm 1. There's the way of the blessed man, there's the way of wisdom, or is the way of the folly who, or the evil one who will be like chaff that the wind drives away. Verses 2 and 3, David says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David asked God to wash him clean. And so we know that sin is, is a violation of God's legal standard. It's a violation of God's law. But as we saw in Leviticus, that sin defiles, sin stains. And so these things need to be uh, fixed, otherwise no one can exist in God's presence, which is why we saw the sacrificial system and the need for the distinction between clean and unclean. And David asked God to not only wash him once, but to wash him thoroughly, to wash him and wash him again and again, knowing that he is far from perfect and he is far from living up to God's perfect standard. And he says that he knows that his transgressions and his sins are ever before him. Paul in Colossians 3.5, speaking to the church in Colossae, says, put to death, or in the old King James, mortify what is earthly in you. And then he says these things that are earthly are sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And so for us to be able to put to death, to mortify what is earthly in us, we have to know. There has to be a knowing of our sins. And a knowing of our sins only comes if we're like the blessed man in Psalm 1 that is delighting in the law of God, that is meditating on the law of God, that knows the word of God so that way he can spot his sin and know what he needs to do to correct it. And we also need the members of God's church, which is essentially the one another's of the New Testament. That this is what church membership looks like, is that we hold each other accountable, we encourage one another, we support one another. But God forbid if something happens where we need to correct a brother, we go through the Matthew 18 sequence that Jesus teaches. And so Watson, going back to him again, he says this in terms of knowing that I infer that where there is no sight of sin, if you do not know, you can't repent of what you don't know, there can be no repentance. Many who can spy faults in others see none in themselves. And for those who are with us with the Sermon on the Mount study, this is really essentially Matthew chapter 7. The idea that Jesus says and teaches, take the beam out of your own eye before you even would dare go to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That we have to examine ourselves, and then that way we're, to, we're able to go to a brother or sister with a humble heart, hoping and longing for their repentance if it's needed. Continuing in verse 4, David says, Against you, you only have I sinned, God. 
And so this is really a stunning statement if we think about it, because David is saying against God alone has he sinned. But if we remember our story, he's sinned against Bathsheba. He's either seduced her or he's exerted his power as king to bring her in. He's sinned against Uriah. He has committed adultery with his neighbor's wife. He's coveted his neighbor's wife. He's had him put to death. He's corrupted the leaders of his army. He sent them a message that they have to do a sinful act, and they don't want to disobey the king. So he's corrupted his leaders. He's sinned against the people because as king, as the representative of the nation, he's to be the moral standard showing God's law in how he lives. And so he has sinned against the community of people. And so we could basically say there isn't anyone that David has sinned against in this story. So how can he say against you, you only God, have I sinned? And we understand that sin is only sin because of God. Sin is only sin because it is an affront to the law and standard and moral um, standard of God. That it's an offense to him that if we slap our neighbor in the face, that is only wrong because the God who has commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves has done so in Leviticus that we saw. And so against God and God alone, David can say, I have sinned because it is God is the one who is ultimately offended and it is God is the one who can take action in judgment. We see in verse 5 that David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so in this we see what's known as the doctrine of original sin, uh, which isn't the first sin Adam and Eve committed. It's essentially that Everyone is now born from Adam and Eve, is born in Adam, is born in exile, and with the stain of sin upon their lives. That apart from God's work and grace, we do not seek his good pleasure. Continuing on, though, David sees in verse 6 that, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. That David sees the correction to verse 5 as a transformation of the heart from the inside out. And this is not a looking into yourself for any sense of self-esteem or self-fulfillment as so often taught in our day and age. That we need to, to get right with ourselves. We need to have our truth so that way we can live a fulfilling life. But David understands that this is God who needs to teach him wisdom in the secret heart. That it is God who needs to do the act. That it is God who needs to be the one who changes him. And so this teaches us about true repentance, that true repentance must have an increasing understanding of our sin and idolatry, that we have to meditate and be in the word, studying the scriptures, praying, understanding what God's standard is, and that all sin is an offense before a holy God. And the starting point to correct it is, and as we saw, an appeal to God's mercy, but it is understanding that God has to change our heart. God has to work from the inside out. We can't white-knuckle ourselves to being pleasing to God. It is God who does the work. And so Thomas Watson says this in terms of knowing our sin more. He says, the more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we shall taste in Christ. The understanding that as we come to see how far short of God's perfect standard we fall, the cross and the work of Christ will seem all the more beautiful. Because we know the greater chasm that he had to uh, fill with his grace to ultimately save us as his people. Verses 7 to 13 and verses 7 to 12, we see this, this uh, repetition of pleas to God to do something. We see David say, purge me with hyssop, wash me, let me hear joy and gladness, hide your face from my sins, create in me a clean heart. 
Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. We're just going to highlight just a couple of these. Uh, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop is, is what they use to spread the blood of the lamb uh, over the doorposts right before the exodus. So that's the Passover meal and they're covering the doorposts with hyssop and the blood. And hyssop was also used in Leviticus uh, when they were doing the cleansing ceremony for leprosy. So when someone was healed, was cured of their leprosy, they would use hyssop in the cleansing ceremony. And so David is understanding potentially both these things was he's choosing his words for God to pur purge him. He understands that he needs the Passover lamb's blood to essentially atone for his sin. He understands that leprosy is, is similar to sin and how it is, it is uh, affecting the whole of the person and is casting them out from God's covenant community. And so he wants to be pure, purged. He petitions God to create in him a clean heart. And this word create is what's used uh, in Genesis chapter 1 when God is creating the heavens and the earth. That This word in the Hebrew is used almost exclusively for God as the acting agent. There's only a couple times when it's used as a human agent who is creating, and it's usually in that context something more along the lines of clearing, such as a field. But it is God who ultimately creates. And so he knows that this uh, this petition from God can't just be mere improvement. It can't just be behavior modification. It needs to be a work of God who ultimately creates and renews in him a clean heart because he has stained it and he will continue to stain it as he knows his sins and his transgressions are ever before him. And so God must create. God must do the work. He asks God not to cast him outside of his presence or take his Holy Spirit from him. David potentially could be reflecting upon Genesis chapter 3. That Adam and Eve sin, they transgress the command of God and then they are expelled from God's presence. And David, knowing this grave sin, this sin that is one of the most heinous, adultery and murder, he doesn't want to lose God's presence. He doesn't want God's spirit and, and abiding presence to be taken from him. And lastly, he asks God to restore his joy. And I think this one is a good climactic finish because if we're honest, when we sin, those moments that we knowingly go into something we know we're not supposed to do. It's moments when the joy of our salvation for any way, shape, or form is, is waning. When we lose the joy of our salvation, it's when the fleeting pleasures of this world seem attractive enough to entice us and to snare us in. And so David knows that if he has a rest restoration of God's joy, the joy that was with him when he knows God is his redeemer, his refuge, his savior, then sin would look like it is an affront to God, and something not to be pursued. And in this, we see uh, a repetition. We see a thoroughness of David's repentance. That he doesn't just leave it with verse 2 when he says, wash me thoroughly, cleanse me from my sins. No, he circles back and repeats, God, you need to clean me. You need to wash me. You need to make me white as snow. And he hits it from different angles, and David realizes he can't do this himself. It is God who must do the work. It is God who grants the grace of true repentance. And so true repentance, it must be persistent and it must be thorough because sin is a relentless enemy. Another Puritan, not Watson, but a guy named John Owen has a, a phrase that he was, he's known for. It's be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That sin is our enemy never takes a day off. It never takes a night off. It is seeking to entrap us. We have an enemy who's prowling like a roaring lion and he doesn't take a day off either. And so neither can we in terms of our 
awareness of the spiritual battle and our understanding to repent. And so in light of all these things, in light of all these petitions, and only after God's cleansing can David say, then, and only then, will I teach transgressors your ways and bring sinners to repentance. Which is really similar to what we emphasize here at Revolve, the idea of hearing, obeying, and sharing. You may have one of the stickers. And so we need to hear the word of God. We need to obey the word of God, which can be uh, repentance. It can be an action step. And only then are we prepared to share. That we need to share from hearing and obeying. And so true repentance leads us to both serve the family of God and to call the lost to repentance. That as we repent and we receive God's grace, it is that motivation that we desire that same act for others. We want them to repent and to receive God's grace. Verses 14 to 17, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so David ultimately was guilty of Uriah's death. And so he's asking God, he's petitioning God, Lord, to deliver me from the blood guiltiness of the murder of Uriah. And so he knows, and then he ends this with the sacrifice, or I would offer a sacrifice, but you would not take it. Ultimately, it's not because God doesn't desire sacrifice. We know that he put that in his law. We know in the New Testament it's a slightly different sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of our lives living for him. But David knows that his particular sins, as we saw in Leviticus, there are no sacrifices for them. That the sin of adultery, the sin of murder are both judged by death. That God repeatedly says, purge the evil from among you. So David has no other option in this situation. There is no sacrifice to give. He must simply ask God to deliver him, to save him uh, from these sins. And so true repentance must come from the heart as we see that that's the only sacrifice David has in this moment. As he said in verse 6, that God delights and truth in the inner being and teaching him wisdom in the secret heart. This is where David has to, this is all he can offer, is a broken heart before God and trust himself to God's mercy. Lastly, he then turns to a petition for the city that he's king over, Zion in Jerusalem. He says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem and then you will delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. And so David, as he's finishing up his personal repentance, he's turning his eyes to the fact that he's the king, he's the representative of this nation. And as we saw years back in our king's study, uh, for those who were here for that, that so often as goes the king, so went the nation. And so David knows he has transgressed the law of God. He is not acting as a good king is supposed to. And so he's petitioning the city that God would not bring any judgment upon them because of his actions. When Nathan's confronting David in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, he says this, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, David, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. 
For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And so David knows he will have trouble for himself personally, and he doesn't want that to extend beyond himself to the nation. And so David, after heartfelt repentance, he's desiring to see the city of God built up and that the proper worship of God would be performed. He doesn't want anything further going wrong in this situation. That true repentance reorients one's heart to desire the true and proper worship of God. And that all of humanity being our chief purpose is ultimately to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So true repentance leads us back to that chief purpose, that chief aim that we're here to bask in God's goodness, to worship him and to love him. And so that's Psalm 51. And so just a handful of takeaways. We see that this psalm is penned by the king. And so if you remember from the introduction to the Psalter, we, we said that this, this book, this Psalter, this songbook is messianic music. The Messiah, the anointed one. This is the songbook of the king. And so in this instance, we see that the king is, is repenting for his sins personally, but he's also teaching his congregation, teaching his people, his assembly, how to repent well before God. But unfortunately, we know that this king, David, who is kind of the climax of the Old Testament in terms of that seed, that offspring promised to Eve, it builds to David. We know David ultimately isn't that seed because of this grave sin, that he is still born in Adam, as we saw in verse 5 that he cannot be perfect. So he's like his brothers in every respect, to borrow a phrase from Hebrews, but also with sin. And so this psalm brings in us how to repent, but also a longing for a greater David, one who comes, one that we know is Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the true king, who comes and not only teaches us how to repent, because Psalm 51 is his scriptures as well, but also in the Lord's Prayer that he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that he, you petition God to forgive us as we forgive others. But this greater son of David does so much more than that because he doesn't just teach us how to repent by his life, death, resurrection, and sending of his spirit, the fact that he was born and conceived of the Holy Spirit and not born of Adam. He makes us as his people united to him by faith, new creations. So that sin no longer has power over us that we can overcome it as we uh, perform the spiritual disciplines, as we meditate on the word of God, as we pray and are connected to the spirit and walk in step with the spirit. That what David could never do, his greater son accomplishes far more immeasurably than we could ever ask for. But if we do sin, we know that we can truly repent because not only is Jesus completed his work, he is still doing his priestly work of interceding for us at the father's right hand that we have an advocate, that if we confess our sins, as it says in 1 John, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, not because of anything in us, but because of Christ's perfect righteousness that is ours in faith. And so going back to the beginning and this idea of, of the sinner's prayer and this idea of kind of a, a, just do these emotions, do these actions, and then you're good. You don't have to worry about a life lived of repentance. We need to have a more robust doctrine of faith. Uh, I'm reading through the 1689 uh, Baptist Confession this month, and, and in one of the chapters it says this. It says, faith that receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness is the only instrument of our justification, which is just our right standing before God, is by faith alone in Christ alone. But they go on to say, yet 
It does not occur by itself in the person justified. That this faith that saves us and unites us to Christ alone, it comes with a change of our actions. It is always accompanied by every other saving grace of which repentance and a pursuit of holiness would be considered. It is not a dead faith, as James warns us about, but it is a faith that works through love. A faith, a true faith that is emphasized or, or is um, shown by our actions, by our understanding of that we need to come and repent before God. And so if this felt heavy as well, the idea of we need to be aware of our sin, um, the important thing to know is that, like I said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to just and forgive us our sins. That we come with a true conviction, we come with broken and contrite hearts, but we don't, uh, you know, don't beat ourselves. It's not asceticism. It's not, you know, you got to, you know, whack your stick on the head five times or ten times. You come with a broken heart and you run to Christ. Because he offers freely his grace in the gospel. Finishing up with uh, Thomas Watson again, he says this. Upon our turning to Christ, which is essentially what repentance is, you're seeing that the direction you are on is wrong according to God's standards, and you are turning to then correct your path. Upon our turning to God, we have more restored to us in Christ than ever was lost in Adam. God says to the repenting soul, I will clothe you with the robe of righteousness. I will enrich you with the jewels and graces of my Holy Spirit. I will bestow my love upon you. I will give you a kingdom, son, daughter, all I have is yours. That we see in Ephesians 1.3, that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That that's ours. That we don't need the fleeting pleasures of sin and these worldly pursuits, but that we pursue Christ. And the joy that we can find in him is more than anything this world has to offer. If you would bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, Lord, we thank you for the work of salvation through your Son, applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. Father, teach us to be a people who hate sin, Lord, that we see its bitterness more and more each day, so that way we would see the sweetness of Christ more and more. Lord, so often we can be jaded, Lord. We can um, sin and not even think of it, Lord, to maybe put off repentance to later in the day when we have our quiet times at night or the next morning. But Lord, teach us to repent when we feel the conviction immediately. Lord, when we know that we have wronged a brother or a sister and ultimately have sinned against you, Lord, that we would seek repentance eagerly, knowing that you desire and delight in a repenting soul. Lord, that the righteousness of Christ is ours. That you will clothe us in his robes of righteousness. That we don't need the tacky garments of the world and of the enemy. Lord, teach us to put to death what is earthly in us and to put on the new self, as it says in Colossians chapter 3. And Lord, that we may be a shining beacon of your people, not as a bunch of uh, dead Pharisees, Lord, who do all the right motions, Lord, but don't have a love and compassion for the lost. But, Lord, that we would do so because we want to honor your holiness and call 
those who aren't a part of your family, a part of your kingdom with humility, knowing that we are just poor beggars ourselves, trying to tell other poor beggars where there's bread, where there's the bread of life. And so, Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for our assurance of our pardon because of his work and not anything that is done in us. And so we can know that we are yours because we are Christ's. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.